Hello, thank you for joining us for this podcast interview with Cassio Say. We're going to discuss Cassio's research on social mobility among black communities according to their experiences of labour, housing and education in 20th century Brazil. Um, so can you tell us about your academic journey? Absolutely. Thank you for having me. Um, so when I entered university, I came to the University of Kansas as a pre-pharmacy major, a concentration in pre-pharmacy. I thought that I was going to become a pharmacist. This was the plan that my parents had for me. My parents are immigrants from West Africa, Ghana, and I'm a first-generation student. And so um, they thought that would be a good secure way of having um, mobility and financial security. And so I did that um, for a while, but my first love was history. And eventually I decided to go on a different track. I wanted to become a historian. Um, I grew up in Kansas, which has a, myth a strong mythology about the Civil War, um, which makes sense. It was the site of um, pre-Civil War tensions, including Bleeding Kansas, um, John Brown's raids. Um, so we have this mythology about us that we were, I mean, it was true, we were against slavery, we fought for the Union, um, et cetera, et cetera, but um, that doesn't necessarily mean that there's an anti-racist um, bent. Um, so when I was growing up as a child in Kansas, I felt very alienated by um, my schoolmates and my teachers and the community that I was living in because I felt I perceived anti-Blackness, but there was not really a language to discuss it. And in fifth grade, I was assigned Ida B. Wells um, as somebody to study for this thing called the American Heroes Project. And that was my first foray into history as something that I found so profound and life-saving. So I think I held on to that for a long time. And in those first couple of years of doing pre-pharmacy, I just, that kept growing and I decided to make a break. So I switched to history and um, I, just joined a lot of scholarly communities for undergraduates. I became a McNair Scholar, which is a, um, the McNair Scholars Program is a, uh, it's a federal initiative in the United States to prepare students who are first generation, um, meaning the first in their families to go to college, students of color or low-income students um, to go into graduate school, um, primarily doctoral programs. And so 
that allowed me to prepare for graduate study in a number of ways. I did research projects that were led by professors in my department. I was able to form mentorships with other faculty. I was supported to do things like study abroad and archival trips. And um, I was able to do a research internship um, at the University of Illinois, where I ended up beginning my doctoral studies. Um, so I think having those experiences, oh, and they paid for, um, for graduate school applications. So all together, those experiences culminated in me being able to apply to various programs and then making connections at those various programs and then deciding on the University of Illinois. Um, when I wanted to become a historian, when I decided on history as a major in undergraduate, I really wanted to focus on American history, um, primarily the post-civil rights era and race relations as a way to speak to my experiences surrounding anti-Blackness and colorblind ideologies. But then the first semester that I was a history major, I was duly enrolled in two courses. One, um, beginning Portuguese, and the other, a, a course called the History of Afro-Descendants in Colonial Latin America. And I chose Portuguese because I needed a language requirement, and I had taken French for seven years, and I was really disillusioned by <laughs> French society at the time. I don't really remember why, but I was just like anti- I don't want to do French anymore. And I had an ex who had put me on to Brazilian Tropicalia music, which I continue to enjoy. Um, and so I just decided I would take Portuguese and um, the other course on colonial Black Latin Americans sounded interesting. So I enrolled in both, and that was 2012. And at that time, um, Brazil was on the map in the United States. The economy was still good. The Workers' Party was in power um, through Jilma. Um, the Workers' Party had put in a lot of money into higher education. And so there are many Brazilians participating in the Ciencias Sem Fronteras program, and they were doing sandwiches or just like semester year-long study abroads, um, study abroad programs across the United States and Europe and I think Asia. And so there was a lot of interaction and so Brazil was present in my mind. And I remember in the Portuguese class, I saw Gilberto Gil on a program that we were watching and it was in the sixties. And I was really surprised. I was like, why are they so interested in 
and that like there was a mixed audience watching him and I was like oh shouldn't it be segregated or something and the instructor was like oh well Brazil's a multiracial democracy and we have a history of like racial harmony um so I I mean growing up Brazil wasn't really in my mind I knew that there were black people there but I didn't really think about it and so I just accepted what she said and then in the other class I was reading about the experience of Africans and their descendants and the histories of racialization during the colonial period and then Brazil figuring largely into that history and Brazil learning that Brazil was the last country in the Americas to abolish slavery in 1888. I was like, this is interesting. How can you be racially harmonious and, and be the last country <laughs> to end slavery? <laughs> so I found that very interesting. And I learned about racial democracy discourse and mestizaje or mestizashem. And um, I became a double major in Latin American studies. I was encouraged to apply for a FLAS fellowship, also a federal initiative to encourage um, US citizens to become specialists in area studies. I won that fellowship and I went to Bahia and I studied abroad there. And I came back with more questions than answers. Um, Salvador is a very, it's nicknamed the Black Mecca because it has a huge Black population there. And it's, Salvador was also the first colonial capital of Brazil. Um, so I think, yeah, those were the initial questions that sparked, or the initial interest that sparked my um, commitment to Brazil and Latin America. And I kept developing them in graduate school into the work that I do now. Great. Uh, that was really interesting to listen to. So thanks for sharing that with us. Um, so that brings me right on to the next question, which is tell us about the research that you're working on right now. Sure. Um, my research is um, situated in 20th century Afro-Latin America, and I research Black perspectives on urban life, politics, and inequality in Brazil. I center Black accounts of labor, education, housing, and media to map out the broadest array of historical actors who animated Black community life, um, especially in regard to social mobility. To that end, I privilege Black women and use intersectional archival methods and Black Brazilian feminist theory to tell more complete histories of race, gender, and class in Latin America. Um, in my, the dissertation that I'm writing, which is called Another Urban Grammar, Race and the Political Economy of Social Mobility in Sao Paulo, Brazil, 
Um, I argue that Black people's evolving entanglements with wealth and property in the city of Sao Paulo challenged, redefined, and expanded the meanings of opportunity in urban Brazil. And I do that by focusing on their strategies, which range from building Black schools and organizing initiatives to collectively purchase land, to negotiating access to governors, mayors, and developers through legal and clandestine means. Um, in navigating a landscape organized by informal economies, de facto segregation, and the absence of race-conscious public policy, Black communities forge their own definitions of economic opportunity and participation. And I illustrate their political demands, such as equal access to accommodations and services, as early frameworks for what would later emerge as key institutions in modern Brazil, such as public health care and universal primary schooling. Excellent. And uh, what are the main kind of arguments and interventions that you're making uh, in this dissertation? Sure. Um, I am focused, I am engaging the historiography of social mobility from a different angle. Traditionally, um, the historiography focuses on why didn't Black people have parity with white communities um, at a time of, of um, excuse me, I hiccuped. At a time of um, political attention to social welfare and expansion of, um, of um, new industries and positions, um, what I am trying to do is think about how Black people and Black communities thought about that time period and those types of opportunities. So as opposed to focusing on the lack, on the racial inequalities themselves and saying, okay, Black people were not in these industries or they were excluded from these things, I'm trying to ask the question, well, what did they think about certain industries or certain spheres where they are supposed to achieve some type of social mobility? Um, so for example, the literature focuses a lot on vertical social mobility, whereas some of my work reveals the ways in which um, Black communities, and in particular, Black women sought horizontal mobility. So vertical mobility is you are trying to ascend across professions into a better location, whereas in horizontal mobility, you are trying to move within the same, um, the same profession, but you may or may not be able to improve the conditions of the, of the profession itself. So in one way that I do this is I look to domestic workers and their organizing campaigns. 
And domestic work um, for most of the 20th century was not a privileged form of work or labor by the government. Um, in the, the labor laws, agricultural workers and domestic servants were excluded from, uh, from labor protections, which included paid time off, um, access to insurance, uh, regular um, work hours, um, ability to take your, your, your employer to court for abuse or mismanagement, and also, most importantly, the right to unionize. Um, but in the work that they were doing and their argument to have all of those benefits, they were saying that we don't need to abandon domestic service in order to have better lives. What should be done is that we should have these recognitions in order to improve the profession as a whole. However, what they were encountering was not only stigma, but the efforts of um, their employers to erode any types of means for any kind of upward mobility. Um, so what kind of sources and methods are you using to, you know, make these interventions and arguments here? Sure. I, I have three source spaces I take from newspapers, particularly local newspapers, as well as the national press to locate um, Black communities and their engagement with several spheres, those being housing, education, the labor market, as well as um, certain means of facilitating mobility being migration and also symbolic forms of um, mobility in social spheres. So through popular culture. Um, I, so I use newspapers to locate those engagements and to locate my historical actors. I'm also taking from oral history and interviews. And I um, situate those with quantitative data, including census data and surveys. Um, and I basically use firsthand accounts to track the ways in which um, Black communities are defining forms of social mobility, as well as the meaning of opportunity in their lives through the, the spheres that they're interacting in. Sounds like you've got a lot of sources there. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I think something what the highlight is, uh, is what were the main challenges in doing this work? So I know that you, you, were, you were chatting earlier that you managed to get some research done before the pandemic started. So what were the main challenges in doing all this? The main challenges I would say is, although it sounds like I do have a lot of um, archival sources and I do, it was challenging to 
put them together because one of the challenges of archival work on race and um, race and ethnicity in Latin America, but also in particular Brazil is it's very rare that you are able to go into an archive and say, hey, I want everything you have on black people or whatever. Because general, there's so many, famously, there's so many terms to engaged race and there's not one term, but also um, archival collections still have this problem of not being organized through the politics and the ideologies of racial democracy. Um, and so it's not likely that you're going to find uh, a collection itself that is like, this is dedicated to race relations. What you have to do is become strategic. So there are collections on Black um, cultural contributions and music and the arts, or maybe sports. There are personalities that have submitted their um, records to, to archives. There are people who hold their own archival collections, but they're not public. Or um, going through university collections of professors and um, being able to go through um, the work that they've done. And so I've done that. I've found that helpful um, for my own research. I draw my sources, a lot of my sources from um, the archival collections of Floristan Fernandes, who was a famous sociologist in Brazil and um, a influential person in the scholarship in terms of race relations in Sao Paulo in the mid 20th century. Um, Virginia Bicudo, um, as well as many others. And so drawing from that range of sources, you're able to bring things together and then you can have more of a grasp of what is going on. Um, a very pivotal source that a lot of scholars in my field rely on is the Black press. And the Black press refers to, um, refers to the tradition of press making and news, Black newspapers in Brazil. And Sao Paulo had the largest number of newspapers, Black newspapers during the 20th century. But one of the problems is that the news, the journalists who wrote for these newspapers, they were engaging a smaller subsection of the Black community there. So those who were educated, who were literate, those who had um, more, more social prestige than others. And so they're not necessarily engaging all the time with the wider swath of um, people within the Black community. So that could include domestic workers or 
informal laborers, people who are not literate, people who, um, who have other things going on, who may not be able to engage um, that type of um, newspaper culture. And so by using interviews or memoirs or oral histories, it's a little bit easier to get that larger range because in doing those interviews, it doesn't require um, a person to be literate or a person to um, be able to speak to very specific things, um, but rather getting them to open up about their life story. And so by tracking and doing a textual analysis of um, their discourses, the things that they say, I'm able to track patterns um, as it relates to social mobility and um, how they understood social mobility and their own lives. How did you uh, go about choosing who to interview for these oral history, uh, for the oral history element of this? So I did my own interviews, although they were cut short because of the pandemic, but a lot of the other interviews that I um, sourced, they were already done, um, but I was giving them a second look. Um, so one collection that I draw from is from the, it's called The Memory of Slavery, in Black families in the state of Sao Paulo. And it was a project done um, at the University of Sao Paulo to commemorate the 100th year um, anniversary of slavery. And the researchers were trying to understand the impact of slavery on three generations of families within three generations of families. Um, but what was interesting about that project was even though they were trying to locate slavery and they thought that slavery would be the defining force um, of these black families, they articulated otherwise. So rather than say, oh, I believe slavery is why my my job trajectory has been this way they often articulated like no i encountered discrimination or i had to work in the slow wage job for many years and um my boss separated me from um job opportunities or other things so slavery was more distant than the conditions that they were discussing, which was the impact of urbanization, urban planning, um, the pricing out um, due to higher rents and um, land speculation, um, increased requirements in education, the emergence of certain industries. Um, as well as racial discrimination. And so that those types of um, 
surprises gave me the opportunity to think about how I would structure my own interviews and also the questions that I could ask. And uh, that brings me on to one of the questions I have down here, which is so that you situate yourself within urban and African diaspora studies. So how does this dynamic influence your work? Sure. Well, just for the listeners to know, um, Brazil has the largest population of African descent outside of Nigeria. So it has a larger Black population than, say, the United States. However, when we think of Black history and Black communities, we tend to focus on the United States and not put it in conversation with other places or think about how other areas of the diaspora have experienced and engaged um, certain issues. And so I think that where I situate my study is that um, these questions of labor, questions of housing, question of education really um, are able to dialogue well with um, case studies in the United States, let's say Chicago or Philadelphia, um, Detroit. Um, so I think that I'm bringing new perspectives into um, how urbanization affects African diasporic communities, but through the lens of Latin America. And uh, how does this work? How does this, how does this dissertation change the way that we think about history? That is a, that's a huge question. <laughs> I guess you touched on that a little bit there on the, on the previous response, but yeah. <laughs> I think what I would say is it goes back to the challenge that I had and one, the, ch the challenge being, how do you, how are you able to represent historical actors that for whom the, the historical record is a little bit smaller or it's rare, not that it didn't exist, but it's harder to re recreate. And so I think my contribution <laughs> to informing how we think about history is encouraging people to become a little bit more creative about who the movers and the shakers of history can be and challenging our understanding of things or ideas that we take for granted. And another kind of big question is, uh, how does it support global history? I think it supports global history primarily by putting, changing the, the focus from the global north to the global south. And I think it changes the, the, it just redefines where we start 
that we start somewhere else as opposed to where we believe that we have to start. So by being in Brazil or being in Latin America, you are dealing with a whole different types, whole different host of ways of thinking about um, race, thinking about labor, thinking about education. Um, it's a whole different ball game <laughs> entirely. <laughs> Um, but in thinking in different terms, it allows us to think about ourselves in different ways. Um, and so, I mean, I think that's what brought me to Latin American history in general is that I was trying to seek a new way to think about my own social location and the United States and then realizing that um, a different case study had a lot to say about my trajectory here. And so I, I think that is my hope for global history as well. Excellent. I mean, that's, I support that 100%. And that's kind of one of the goals of the Scottish Center for Global History is to decenter the global north in the way that we understand human existence. Um, so, yeah, it's great. Uh, so my final question is not about your research. So uh, thanks for telling us about your your dissertation. And my last question is on a conference paper you gave recently at uh, an interdisciplinary open access critical femininities conference at York University in August 2021. So the title of the project was Black Femme Pedagogies in Action. Could you tell us a little bit about this? Sure. I... So I started, or not I started, excuse me. I taught again in, um, in the first year of the pandemic while I was writing my dissertation and I taught two courses. I taught, I TA'd for a course called Black Music. And then I taught my own course, which was um, a history of black women in the spring. And at the same time that I was teaching, we had one <laughs> global pandemic, two, um, the, the continual disruption of the Trump presidency, as well as the national and international protest against the police shooting of um, Michael, or sorry, George Floyd. Um, and so it was a very rough time and it was a disorienting time. And the students were engaged, but in a way that required a different approach. And in my, and this came to a head in my Black women's history course because for the first time I had a, a student population that was majority, not only majority black, but majority black women and majority of color. And for them, for many of them, it was the first time that um, they had a professor who was a black woman 
but I think especially in this moment moment of diversity, equity, and inclusion and um, uh, representation, it's easy to believe that that combination would immediately warrant a positive um, intellectual environment. Um, but I found that that was very hard to build because they were bringing the legacies of previous instruction with them. So when I would try to introduce certain types of pedagogical innovations, like um, allowing them to create their own assignment, or instead of writing a essay, I asked them to build a photographic essay. Um, to tell the history of um, Black women in colonial in the colonial Americas, they were very reticent and hesitant um, to do those things at first because they were able to um, confide in me that, oh, I feel that if I actually do this, you are going to go back on your word. Or... I can't really read this thing out loud in person because I'm used to professors or other students ridiculing me and I don't feel like I can have a voice. So with every week I had to think of, well, what does it mean to build an inclusive pedagogy? Um, and so the the paper that I gave or the presentation that I gave at the X conference, XS conference was thinking through <laughs> that process of how I got the students to confide in me and to um, trust that we were safe there, that they could experiment with um, the work that they were doing with their critical thinking skills, with what they had to contribute with um, group building projects. Um, in the context of the pandemic, in the context of the George Floyd protest, in the context of a lot of the, the history that they were confronting in my course, because as black women or students of color or any type of student, a lot of what I was introducing was not known to them, was not taught to them. And so that could be a profound and emotionally draining experience. So I had to think of, well, how do I give them a rigorous curriculum, but at the same time have the space for them to um, engage that work and feel safe and empowered to do so. And through that work, I realized that um, I had to I had to incorporate a lot of the lessons of care work and a framework of community of care, which comes from um, a lot of black feminist and black femme, and femme in the queer sense, um, activism. So how do we prioritize 
um, taking care of communities as we try to um, enact social change around us. Um, so as a instructor, I was always formulating, how do I have these students trust me throughout the process? How do I build trust? How do I build consent to the things that we do? Um, so it's not something that they feel that they have to do, but something that they want to do, that it's an embodied yes. And um, one of the ways that I would do that was I built in feedback, um, feedback surveys, I think about every five weeks. And um, the, the pull for them was that I would award extra credit, but um, I asked them certain questions like, what do you want, um, what do you wish that your professors knew that um, they don't currently know? Or what do you feel that you're learning that I'm not explaining better? Or what, are, what approach to the assignments do you find helpful? Where can you be more active in your learning? And, and recovering those, um, those surveys every five weeks, I was able to track how most of the class was doing over time, but also the experiences that they were navigating being students in a pandemic and a socially hostile time. Um, but in doing those things, they were responding back to me like, oh, now I know that you're actually invested in my success and you're not just performing a service or you're not just performing a job, but you're interested in what I have to say and that we are learning together. Um, and so that created a very positive class experience, um, I think, not only for myself, but for them. That sounds like a, it was a wonderful experience for, for everyone involved there. Uh, I think just at the end, you touched on a, you know, what was a real, a, a real issue, which is the concern that someone might be, perf be in performative care rather than actual care. And I think that, you know, those kind of comments highlight the fact that many people are <clears throat> just performing a care and an interest in their students and they're not actually carrying it out. Um, so yeah, it sounds like that was, that was excellent. Um, so that was, my, that was my final question. Uh, so thank you very much, Cassie, for joining us. Thank uh, you. I hope it was a useful opportunity to share your work with a, a public audience. And I hope you carry on this meaningful research and this pedagogical practice in your next role as an assistant professor. Thank you.